following program is pre-recorded. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. You hear it inside the Beltway. That music means we have the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week, almost every week with Dr. Larry Arn, president of uh, Hillsdale College. And uh, this week in the last four, Glenn Elmers, the author of this book, which I am holding up, The Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America. And we've spent four weeks, and this is our last conversation about the soul of politics, and I'm going to come to it in a second, Glenn. But Dr. Arn, there was an election in Virginia this week. Now, everywhere I go, when I moderated the Ohio Senate debate last week, or was with Herschel Walker in Atlanta, people ask me, what does Dr. Arn think about this or that? That's because we have done 412 Hillsdale Dialogues. I looked it up the other day on oh, iTunes. Lord, you're counting them now. I know. I, the iTunes is. 412. <laughs> and so they always ask me, and I say, well, the one thing I know is that he's a Browns fan and he roots for Ohio State. Once I've got that done, I really try and, and tell them what I think you think. But I want to know what you think of the Virginia election, so I don't have to make that up. What does that mean for the country? Uh, well, it's uh, so I, I have a detailed opinion about that, but I won't give it in detail. Uh, I think uh, I've been saying for about two months now, because for about well, for about a year, but especially the last two months, things look awful. It's just terrible, right? And of course, when things look awful, you think. Any time a battle is going bad, the pattern is it's just going to go all the way to the end and you're dead. But that can't be. And uh, I think the answer is located in the things that drove this election. Uh, it's, it's occurred to me now that bureaucratic government doesn't have anything to say except to interfere with the most important things in our lives. And those important things are known to everybody and cherished by everybody, even if they don't think about them every day. And what are they? They are how we get our living, right? That's most of our waking time. They are everything we love the most, which, which is why we get our living. And that means our families, our children, our communion with things that we think about, even if we don't go to church, at Christmas and Thanksgiving and at weddings and funerals and christenings, right? We really orient our lives around those things. And if our lives are, 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 are not good lives because we've made bad choices, it's those occasions when it's clear to us. Now, the point is, those things drove this election. People see now that they are being interfered with in their most private and essential things and also public things. And so people, there's a lot of talk this morning that uh, the pattern has been set for winning in 2024 and 2022, and I think that's right, if we remember that what government is actually chiefly about is to protect those things. Not ought to, those be, things ought to be chiefly about. I'm yeah. not sure that government is about those things. Now I need to talk just briefly about the media's coverage of what happened. I think you're accurate. I think you, you have diagnosed what happened in Virginia and New Jersey and across the country and what will happen next year. Yesterday, in the aftermath of the red wave in Virginia, built on Glenn Youngkin's promise to listen to parents and to abolish CRT in Virginia schools, Michelle Cinder, who works for us, and she's a friend of mine, she is a PBS correspondent, host of Washington Week in Review, asked two questions of the president. What he said didn't matter. The questions did. Uh, let's play cut number eight. What should Democrats possibly do differently to avoid 
similar losses in November, especially as Republicans are now successfully running on culture war issues and false claims about critical race theory. Stop right there. False claims about critical race theory followed up with this question by Yamiche Cinder. cut number nine. What's your message, though, for Democratic voters, especially black voters, who see Republicans running on race, education, lying about critical race theory? Lying about critical. Now, this is a PBS correspondent telling the president, hiding an opinion that Republicans are lying about critical race theory. And they're not. Critical race theory was ordered by Terry McAuliffe's Department of Education throughout Virginia in 2015. And there's a reason why. Merit-based admissions is over now at Thomas Jefferson High School in Northern Virginia, the most elite high school, public high school in Virginia, and it's because of equity issues. Dr. Arm, what do we do when the media throws in with the lie? Well, we have to isolate them. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a big group, but it's also a small minority. The media, the elite media, not all of the media, of course. I mean, here are we on the media. Yep. Uh, the the elite media has joined a ruling class. And ruling classes are always the same. You know, first of all, in modern times, you know, in, in, since the birth of totalitarian government, since science took over as the only source of knowledge, then what they want to dominate is simply everything. And they actually understand that <laughs> they can't dominate everything unless they dominate those things I was talking about. And critical race theory, you know, all you have to do is say what it is in the words of, the, of its advocates, right? And what it is is the view that your color or other, <coughs> excuse me, accidental factors about you, and, and color is an accidental factor. Human beings come in all colors, but they're still human, Right. Yes. So if you try to isolate what the human is, that will just be an accident, something, you know, peripheral. If you, if you teach children that these accidental factors are the cause of their behavior, you cripple them because they then don't have, time, don't have inclination to improve their souls, whether their, their being is actually located. So that's just devastating, right? That's a, and that is 1984. That's the, that's the heart of it right there. And so, uh, that, and that's what they say, right? That's, and, oh, if you get an honest CRT advocate and an honest conversation, it is a top-down driven in the teacher training manual, in the diversity instruction, in the requirement that Terry McAuliffe said on the last day of the election, 80% of the teachers in Virginia are white and we have to change that. It's, it's so obvious, but then to have a media reporter paid for by NPR stand up and tell the president the Republicans are lying about CRT when they're not. Glenn, uh, 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 Glenn Youngkin was telling the truth, and so I want to go to Glenn Elmers. You've just heard Dr. Arn and I talk about the Virginia election. It's all anticipated in the soul of politics, Glenn. It's all there. <laughs> uh, I'd like to think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Joppa saw this a long time ago. The obsession with, with race is, in a way, he likes to point out, the flip side of the Confederacy's obsession with race. Uh, you know, Calhoun was the first person to make race the prism through which to understand politics, uh, to make racial distinctions uh, the center of our political life, uh, to make group rights replace individual rights. Uh, and the left in, in now is just uh, sort of flipping the script on that, uh, switching uh, white to black. 
The obsession with race is everywhere, Larry. It's also, by the way, in the Chinese Communist Party, which is very racialist. Han Chinese are preferred. They are against the Uyghurs. I can't believe our our entire elite governing class has collapsed into race consciousness after so many decades of trying to eradicate it. Well, of course, they exempt themselves from that, right? They What they think is that's that's what they have to adjust about us. And they like that kind of thing because they realize that our sense of our humanity, which is connected to our own motive force in making our livings and raising our children and having our families and and going to church or worshiping, because, you know, not, not, not so many people go to church anymore, but America is still a very worshiping nation. We think about that, you know, almost everybody reports that they pray often, right? Well, that's you talking to a perfect being and, and submitting yourself to that. That's what that is. And that's because we want to do that. We would like to be more perfect ourselves. Anyway, they realize that that's somewhere in the heart of us. And that's what they have to adjust. And They're going for the soul. They're going for the soul, and I think America is awake to it. Glenn, 30 seconds to the break, then we're going to come talk about Shakespeare and the soul of politics. Do you think America is awake to this now? They're becoming more and more awake, thank goodness. Uh, I I hope uh, this is happening in time. You know, Jaffa and and his students have been warning about this for a long time. But in a way, it always takes a crisis to to get people's attention. Uh, And it seems that that's finally happening now. Yeah, part of it is the Green New Deal, part of it is inflation, but part of it is very much CRT, and CRT encompasses a lot of things. There is no textbook for first graders, CRT for first graders, or maybe there is, I haven't seen it. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what Dr. Arn said, the attempt by an elite ruling class to impose its opinions and choices upon the most important opinions and choices you hold about your nature and your family and your God. I'll be right back. Shakespeare dealt with it all. The soul of politics talks about Harry Jaffa taught it. And then beginning next week, we're going after that with others from Hilltail, including Dr. Arne. Glenn Elmers and Dr. Arne back after this. Stay tuned. News is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here when Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. The 412 episodes of the Hillsdale Dialogues are all collected. If you just simply Google Hillsdale Dialogue and iTunes, they're all laid out from the beginning. Just go start at the beginning. Glenn Elmers, for many years when my show was on in the afternoon and I had different agendas, now I have to do breaking news in the morning. I have to make sure people know what's going on when they go to work. I would have on David Allen White, a a professor emeritus from the United States Naval Academy, and we would try and explain Shakespeare to me and thus through me to the masses. And it was wonderful, but we haven't done that for years because it's a morning show now. Now we're retreating because I found Shakespeare in the middle of soul of politics and I did not know that Harry Jaffa was greatly concerned with Shakespeare. Would you set us up by yeah. telling us when it would arise in his courses and what party was most concerned with? 
So just to uh, back up a little bit with the bi- biographical background, he had studied Shakespeare as an undergraduate at Yale. He was an English major at Yale in the 19, uh, late 1930s, early 40s, uh, and became fascinated with Shakespeare. And then later, when he encountered Leo Strauss and turned his attention to political philosophy, he began to see the great political and philosophical themes in Shakespeare, uh, whom he already loved and admired. Uh, and this became, uh, you know, a lifelong uh, interest of his. He co-wrote one of the very first books, uh, looking at Shakespeare as a serious political thinker, which he co-authored with Alan Bloom in uh, the 1950s, called Shakespeare's Politics. And he saw two things, really. In Shakespeare's history plays, he saw a beautiful and profound critique of the problem of divine right of kings, the problem that had plagued Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is what the American founders were really trying to solve, which is uh, uh, the disconnect uh, between political authority and secular authority that really only gets solved with the principle of religious liberty. And the whole English history plays, in a way, are just uh, a long uh, uh, pageant of civil war and violence, because there had never been any way in the medieval political system uh, and Shakespeare's time to reconcile political legitimacy and political authority, because this principle of divine right of kings, assuming that all political power comes from God, uh, could never really put the right person on the throne. The person who might be the, the heir to the throne could be an incompetent or a tyrant, whereas the person who was really qualified uh, isn't in the line of succession. And it's not until you develop the constitutional government of the founders that you really solve this problem. The other part that really fascinated Jaffa were the, the tragedies, and the comedies. And here, and this will surprise some people, Jaffa saw a very interesting philosophical examination of the interplay between wisdom and consent. And this is a very old issue that goes all the way back to the Greek philosophers. And in many, not all of them, but in many of the the tragedies and the comedies, you see Shakespeare um, exploring the idea of what would happen if a wise man could rule. Uh, you know, Plato and Aristotle had always said that, that wisdom is the ultimate claim to rule, but the problem is finding the wise man and persuading him to rule. And many of the comedies and the tragedies, especially uh, plays like Measure for Measure and The Tempest and others, explore uh, how this would work. What would happen if you could get a wise man to rule? And the reason that they're comedies or tragedies is that it doesn't work. And again, in a way, Jaffa saw this as pointing to, without fully seeing, the solution the American founders came up with which was to institute wisdom uh, in an institution, in a constitution, and allow the people to choose their rulers and to allow the wise to emerge naturally rather than through some sort of artificial aristocracy or divine right of kings. And so there are these deep political and philosophical themes in Shakespeare that Jaffa was fascinated with his whole life. I, I want to quote page 116 from The Soul of Politics. Shakespeare's central theme, in Herod Jaffa's estimation, is the investigation of whether and how classical wisdom may operate in a world radically transformed by both Christianity and the reaction against Christianity initiated by Machiavelli. To make sense of the very large subject, we divide Jaffa's writings on Shakespeare into five topics, the choice of five being only somewhat arbitrary. Machiavellian modernity, marriage and the mean, monarchy, succession and divine right, the tragedy and comedy of politics, and philosophic poetry. We can't do all five, Glenn, so we're going to do the history plays first. But when we come back from break, uh, as we set up 
our transition to some Shakespeare in the coming Hillsdale Dialogues. We want to find out what plays mattered most to Harry Jaffa. How did he teach them when we return? Stay tuned. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. It's Friday on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arm, president of Hillsdale College, and by Glenn Elmers, who is the magnificent author of a magnificent book, The Soul of Politics in Bookstores Now, on the Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America. We've talked about it for five weeks. Now we go into Shakespeare. Uh, Dr. Arm, before I ask um, Glenn to lay out how Jaffa taught Shakespeare, uh, I'm curious if you agree with David Allen White, uh, who always argued that Shakespeare being a Catholic in Elizabethan England had to hide his messages deep in his plays often. Um, do you agree with that? No. Uh, I mean, first of all, maybe, but Shakespeare's too great. It's, it, Glenn just said it. Shakespeare is concerned with the whole problem of Christianity and politics because Christianity is a universal religion that does not establish a system of rule. And so if you use it to establish a system of rule, you, you can get the same evils that exist in the Muslim world where they do that, right? In other words, the authority for the government comes from outside the regime, and that means the people have no control over it. So Shakespeare is operating at that level, in my little opinion. And... Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the Reformation is uh, before the world when Shakespeare is writing. And, and, but, but, yeah, in, the kernel of the Reformation is in that transcendent problem. It's a problem with the birth of universal religion. So, Glenn, and, what, what do you think of Shakespeare being a Catholic and writing carefully as a result? Uh, well, he probably wrote carefully. I mean, this is a great theme, this idea of, of uh, smart men, philosophically-minded men. Writing carefully is something that Joff had learned from his teacher, Leo Strauss, and to the degree that Shakespeare was a philosopher. Uh, yeah, he probably did write carefully. Whether or not he was a Catholic, I think, is of less interest to me than what he was trying to say through his careful writing. And that's, again, exploring these these great... Uh, wonderful themes about okay. wisdom and consent and Christianity and, and religion and so forth. Now, I'm going to ask you both, since you were both students there, Jaffa, how did he teach Shakespeare? Glenn, why don't you go first? Um, so, again, I, I didn't actually ever sit in on any of his formal courses. Uh, he had retired, although he was still very much around. Um, but I do know, I've heard stories that he would love to uh, listen to great actors recite, recite Shakespeare. Shakespeare is supposed to be heard. I mean, of course, you can read it, and many people do read it. But, you know, even Lincoln loved to recite Shakespeare aloud, and he would often entertain his guests by doing that, and he loved going to Shakespeare performances. Maybe, and so Jonathan hey, would hey, bring in records. I, I was in many of those classes. Maybe I should answer yeah, that. Yeah, you, you heard the records, right, Larry? Yeah, yeah, Glenn is right. But, first of all, it was magical. He taught Shakespeare consistently better than anything else. Uh, huh. Because he was... You know, he taught everything beautifully, except that Shakespeare, it, it was lent itself to his way. And uh, 
I, I learned something. I'm grateful to you this morning, Hugh. That's a rare occasion. <laughs> because getting ready for this last night, I reread Shakespeare, uh, Jaffa's great essay on Macbeth, and I realized for the first time that he wrote that in 1974, where I had a course with him on Macbeth, and it centers on the most one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in the class, a certain soliloquy in Macbeth. But the essay was written for Hillsdale College. <laughs> really? <laughs> Isn't that odd? Yeah. And uh, anyway, he here's what he would do. He would he, he Churchill uh, Churchill Churchill Jaffa Shakespeare Lincoln. I confuse them. Aristotle. <laughs> anyway, Jaffa would go through the play, and he had a, he had recordings, you know, with a needle, you know, the turntable, and he would play the play, and then he would lift the needle and talk. And the one that I remember is what's the one that's in the center, I rediscover, of this essay on Macbeth, and that is Macbeth has a conversation with himself as he's about to murder Duncan, his kinsman, the king, and his house guest. And so he talks about the fact that those three things cry out against the murder. And he imagines angels crying out against it, and demons below calling for the blood of Duncan. Uh, of Duncan. And at that point, Professor Jaffa picked up the needle, and he said, Does, I remember exactly the words, does this man not live in a richly populated moral universe? And <laughs> and in Jaffa's essay, what he says is that that's the superiority of uh, of Shakespeare to radical superiority to Camus, <clears throat> whose murderer does not live in a moral universe, and to even Dostoevsky, whose uh, murder is confused by the fact that he's regarding it as a sacrifice rather Christ-like. Whereas Macbeth sees the evil of it, and then he does it because his wife talks him into it, and that is his undoing. And the play ends with uh, Macbeth he refuses to sacrifice his opinion of his wife, which is a sort of last act of justice in his life. It's it's just beautiful. And so, so how how does he rec? How did what what was he doing for Hillsdale that he wrote this essay? Was he delivering it, was it at Primus. Hillsdale? Uh, it was you know he was he was uh, 1974. Yeah. The Primus yeah. was started in 1972, I think. Uh, I story a little bit, Larry, if I could just, because I, yeah, I could tell us. look this up. So he was invited, so crime was a big theme in the early 70s, you know, the Manson trial and, and the Furman decision about uh, uh, capital punishment by the Supreme Court, and Jaffa had been invited to talk about crime and human nature and decided to look at three representative texts, which he described as a, the declining moral arc of Western civilization. And so Shakespeare is the pinnacle and then the moral understanding of crime and human nature and the problem of morality descends through Dostoevsky and then into the nihilism of Camus' stranger. And he gave a, a speech on all three of these over the course of a few days at Hillsdale. Wow. Uh, and that's what you read last night, Dr. Art. I did, yeah. And it's, you know, he, uh, Jaffa wrote about eight things. I, I don't have the list in front of me right now. About Shakespeare. And... The, the, he developed, uh, like everything else in his life, it, it's one of the several reasons why Glenn's book is such a service. 
the themes of Jeff's life, he developed them all his life, you know, up into his 90s. And he got better at them over the years. And that was, you know, that's a, a kind of a guide to what an academic life should be like. But these Shakespeare things are persistent, as Glenn says, from undergraduate school, at least, to the end. And he, if, if the name Shakespeare was mentioned, he was attentive. He had yeah, something yeah, to say it, about that. One of the things David Allen White always said is, we study Shakespeare because he is the greatest practitioner of the English language ever. And I don't know if you guys agree with that, but it would make sense for Dr. Jaffa to agree with that. Glenn Elmer's... You're going to be traded to a team, and uh, get, we're going to back another player named Dean Stephen Smith, who's going to you know sit in and do Shakespeare with us. What order, if if you could channel Harry Jaffa, what order of the plays would he read them in? Would he start with the history plays? Yeah, I mean, it sort of depends what you're trying to do. I mean, the history plays are wonderful. Um, you know, they they have a lot to say about these. these the, the political themes are much more explicit. Um, it might, you know, a lot of uh, when Shakespeare is taught at the high school level, a lot of people begin with the comedies, and there's a reason for that. You know, they're entertaining and they're captivating, and and they keep your attention, uh, even though there are very often wonderful political and philosophical themes in the comedies as well. Uh, some of the plays, you know, I wouldn't probably start with with King Lear or Hamlet. Some of those are pretty difficult, um, but but you know. There's so much there, and certainly some of the lighter comedies are a great way to introduce people to Shakespeare's art. I'm sort of tempted to go with Macbeth, Dr. Art. If that's what... Well, Macbeth was the favorite play of Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln. I did not know that. Yeah, and they they both knew it. Here's the story. There's a story of a publisher of Shakespeare's plays that visited Lincoln in the White House. And the plays... You know, the texts were not settled back then as well as they are now. Let's say there would be slight differences in this text or that. And Lincoln was in a long conversation with the man about the choices he made in his printing of Macbeth. And Lincoln knew what the options were. Well, a parallel story about Churchill. Richard Burton was playing Macbeth when Churchill was an old man and and uh, Richard Burton was a young man, and Churchill was by then the greatest man in the world. And he sat in the front row, and Richard Burton records that he was unnerved by that because Churchill <laughs> was talking throughout the play. <laughs> and then in the second act, he realized that Churchill was reciting the lines along with the actors. Wow. <laughs> so, well, then we're starting with Macbeth. Uh, does Dean Smith even know he's been drafted yet, Dr. Arn? I don't know. I don't even care. <laughs> look ask steve smith to talk about shakespeare how will you stop him doing it i know he'll probably be at your house at six o'clock in the morning saying should we cover this should we prepare tell him we're starting with Macbeth, though you know uh, uh, uh glenn i just have to ask in your study of, of strauss before you go to break did harry jaffa worry about saying the name Macbeth in a theater which you cannot do uh he was not given superstition i'm not sure that he ever abided by that uh, rule, but I can't say for certain one way or the other. Uh, Dr. Arn, do you think it's superstition or a simply a long line of tragedies lined up accidentally? Well, one of Professor Jaffa's themes about Shakespeare is that in the Shakespeare plays, the actors are unreliable. So, I, I, you know, there, it's, there are people who are good at pretending what they're not, which is not a good thing to be. And so, you know, we worship the actors today as you know, like their wives or something. So I don't, 
I, I never perceived in Professor, Professor Jaffa respect for the actor's traditions. Okay, we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things at hillsdale.edu. You learn new things every time. I, uh, Harry Jaffa, when I met him, didn't say anything about the actor's tradition, but I can sort of imagine his view of the actor's traditions. Um, we will begin and with Macbeth next week. Get your Macbeth out and start reading it. I'm going to go find Charles and Mary Lamb, who wrote Shakespeare for children. And start with that. That's what I always do. Macbeth next week and then a few weeks of Shakespeare ahead. Maybe months, maybe years. Dean Stephen Smith is a terrific guest and a, and a nice man. He's very nice to me, unlike Dr. Arn. So we, we, we will have that back. I do remind you, the Hillsdale Dialogues are all available, all 412 of them. If you go to iTunes, just type in the Hillsdale Dialogues iTunes. And you go to the beginning and start listening, and you will be much smarter for having listened to Dr. Arn and his colleagues over the uh, eight-plus years that we've been doing this, um, and you will find yourself nodding, yes, my kids should go to Hillsdale. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Rarely do I thank an author as much as I have to thank Glenn Elmers, whose book, The Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America, has really uh, brought a lot of things together for me. And I'm wondering, Glenn, the reaction to the book as we leave Shakespeare and we transition. What is the reaction to the book from Strauss's and Jaffa's students? So um, at the academic level, I mean, among political philosophers, these things take time. I mean, academic journals are notoriously slow. So I won't see some of the sort of more intellectual academic reviews for some time uh, in the journals. Uh, the early reviews have been uh, pretty positive. Um, people focus, obviously, on, on the, the political themes that are confronting us right now. There was a long review uh, a couple months ago uh, bringing up the issue of moderation and extremism and the connection uh, between Harry Jaffa writing that famous Goldwater speech and today's politics. Um, but so far, pretty good. I'm still, like I said, I'm still waiting for the, for the more formal intellectual academic reviews to come down. Uh, well, I, I just hope it, it sells and sells. Dr. Arn, uh, my one sit-down with Harry Jaffa was in the studio. Glenn brought him, and it was a long three-hour <laughs> conversation. Right. And he yelled at me because I, I, <laughs> I disagreed with him. So I feel like I've got a little bit of the sense of Harry Jaffa. And he yelled at me because I thought the 1863 Thanksgiving proclamation by Lincoln was an important document, and he dismissed it as having been ghostwritten. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was my welcome to Harry Jaffa's world. Uh, yeah. What do you think? So you're, you're officially a member of the tribe now. <laughs> <laughs> right. What do you think of Glenn's book and what it will do for your teacher? Uh, well, I'm so first of all, I'm very, I'm I'm proud of the book in a fatherly way because you know I don't I, I probably gave. Glenn his first real job, and he was great at it. And then I have been an advocate for him to emerge from his employment uh, to <laughs> resume his academic career, and he's done that in a splendid fashion. And so uh, Professor Jaffa would, uh, you know, if you, if you got an honor, Professor Jaffa would take entire credit for it. <laughs> so let me be the student of my right. teacher. <laughs> uh, so, so Glenn, very last question. For you. What do you think Harry Jaffa would think of your book? What would he argue with? Um, he, you know, as Larry just pointed out, he would take credit for the good parts. I'm sure he would find something to criticize. 
you know, I tried to, uh, you know, as Cromwell famously said to his portrait painter, show me warts and all, uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't trying to write uh, a hagiography. And so, I, you know, I point out in a few gentle ways uh, some of Joffa's shortcomings. He could be a little vain and some other things. And so I'm sure, you know, he would find something to criticize there. Um, and, you know, he probably would, would have said that I didn't dwell long enough on this theme or that theme. You know, uh, the book is only four, a mere 400 pages. Um, but, you know, I hope he would have appreciated the effort uh, and the attempt to get his, his writings and his scholarship to a wider audience, which was really my intention. To get I think people you to read Jaffa himself. You have succeeded. Now I only have one question for Larry Arnn. Why did you pick him originally as a teacher? Once he's your teacher, I understand sticking. But you had to come out of the University of Arkansas and pick Claremont. Why did you do that? Well, my teacher who, you know, prevented me from falling into the ignorance of being a lawyer (laughs) uh, was a man named Jeff Wallen, who was a student of Professor Jaffa. And I only contributed two things to that. One was I just sort of wheeled on a dime after about a month of a class reading Plato's Republic to a determination to go study more of this. And that meant I had to go to graduate school because I was about to finish undergraduate school. And then that was my first contribution, and that was you know, pretty good, I think, because you learn if you're a teacher that the learning is in the students, not the teacher. And then I insisted with Jeff Wallen that I go to the best place and that he had to identify it for me. And he didn't know me very well, and he didn't have any idea whether I'd be any good back at his place where he went. But I just insisted. He tried to get me to apply to other places. And I said, is that the best? And he would say, yes. And I'd say, why? And he said, that's where Harry Jaffa was, is. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I didn't know very much about Professor Jaffa. I knew about Plato's Republic and Jeff Wallen. And this was the guy who knew those things. I got to go study with him. You know, I, I get that question a lot. And I can honestly say I'm not shining you on. I say send them to Hillsdale. There isn't a second place. And I think that's increasingly true. You had, did you have choices? I mean, there was Harvey, there was Harry, there was uh, um, uh, Closing of the American Mind, Alan Bloom. Did you just wipe them away and say, I'm going to Claremont? Yeah, I, well, there were more choices back then than there are now. Yes, Although, there are. Hillsdale, you know, to study, if you, if Hillsdale is, you know, if I may claim, Hillsdale's uniqueness is that it's, four elements of its mission describe the whole human being, and every student pursues those things. And that's, there, there isn't any place that does all that. But there are good places, there are excellent political philosophy teachers scattered here and there. And, you know, it, uh, my undergraduate education is a model for the kind you can get today if you can get a good one. Uh, and that is, there was... One great teacher at Arkansas State, and I followed him. That is good advice. My advice is better. Just go to Hillsdale, America. Hillsdale.edu. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at you for Hillsdale.com or iTunes and Hillsdale Dialogues. Glenn Elmers, congratulations on the soul of politics. Everyone should get it. Thank you, Dr. Arn. I think. I always have to say thank you. And we'll talk to you next week on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. absolutely positively need the truth this is where you turn this is the hugh hewitt show